Well, uh, good morning uh, and happy Thanksgiving week. Uh, today, I am thankful that I get to spend um, some time with you all uh, this morning. So uh, my name is Keith, uh, and we are continuing our Romans uh, sermon series this morning. And, and today we're going to be looking um, at Romans uh, 13 and looking at what the Bible says about our relationship uh, with governing authorities. Now, I got to tell you, like, I am really excited uh, to give this particular message. Um, so just a little bit about me, you know, like, I, my two favorite things to talk about in life are religion and government. And those are the two things you're not supposed to talk about, like, around people. But those are the two things that I think lead to, like, really interesting conversation. And those are the two things that I get to talk about this morning. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, just a little bit of background about me. So when I was in college, I studied history and political science. And when I was in law school, like, I took every constitutional law class I possibly could. My favorite class at any level I ever had was a political philosophy class. Like, I nerd out about this stuff, okay? I mean, you've been warned, okay? Fair warning. But I do want to start this morning uh, with a little bit of a history lesson that, that I, I promise, just bear with me for a second, and this will lead to a point um, about the scripture this morning. Uh, and, and I want to take us back to the 1600s. And in the 1600s, we went through uh, this time period called the Age of Enlightenment. And during the Enlightenment period, uh, all these people were thinking and writing about all these new topics, and, and government was one of those things that uh, people were, were writing and thinking about in new and different ways. Because see, back in the 1600s, uh, the Western world in Europe was ruled by kings and queens. And kings and queens at that time believed in this thing called divine right. And divine right said that they had a right to the throne because God selected them to rule over their people. Their authority to rule over people came from God. They were subject to the will of God, not the will of the people. That was, where their, uh, that was where their authority, their right to govern, came from. And, but during the Enlightened period, people started to look at that and said, you know what, we don't, we don't really like that, that idea. Uh, there was a guy specifically named John Locke that wrote a really famous essay. And what he said in this essay was, you know, when people are born, everybody kind of is born equal. Everybody's kind of born with this blank slate. Nobody's, nobody's born to rule over other people. Everybody is born, everybody's created equal. And we all have these rights, these rights to life, right to liberty, right to property. And, and, and we give those rights to the government, uh, but it's, it's, it's the consent to govern comes from us giving those rights away to the government. And so, you know, it's no surprise that uh, our founders were children of the Enlightenment, and, and they were very familiar with the writings of John Locke and all these other people. And so it's no surprise that when you look at the Declaration of Independence, it has this language in here. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's the part that I'm sure you're familiar with, but I want to point out the, what it keeps on saying. It says this, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to those ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. I mean, like, that's America, right? Like, we were born out of rebellion and revolution. Give me liberty or give me death. Don't tread on me. Why should a tiny island across the sea regulate the price of tea? <laughs> we pick our leaders. And if we don't like who we pick, 
we kick them to the curb. We the people, that is so ingrained with who we are as Americans. Which brings us to the passage this morning. This is Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one of authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. That is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe to them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. I mean, like, what's your reaction to that passage? I mean, let's be honest. Is there anybody that hears that and, like, I don't know, maybe doesn't like it? I'm not sure I like it, okay? I mean, you know, we started kind of deep to point out this kind of inherent tension about, you know, kind of what we believe about our systems of government and how we got to where we are. Um, but you don't even really have to go that deep to really have, start to have some questions about what this passage says. I mean, just, you know, just on a surface level, you, you can read it, and it starts to lead uh, to some very uh, some, some challenging questions. You know, what does this passage say about somebody, you know, in the civil rights area who was challenging uh, segregation in the South? Or what would somebody living under Nazi Germany, what do they do with this passage? Or, or you know, somebody living under Joseph Stalin or Afghans today living under the Taliban? Like, this is a hard passage. And what I want to show you this morning, in addition to the substance, which we're going to get to in a second, is that we can take hard passages and we can wrestle with them and work through them and actually grow in our faith. It's okay to be challenged by Scripture and admit some parts of the Bible are hard to stand, uh, hard to understand. Now, we can do one of two things when we come upon passages that we think are challenging. The first thing we can do is we can read them and just say, I don't like that, and just keep on reading and skip it. And the danger with that, though, is the danger with that, though, is when we do that, this book, this incredibly awesome book, becomes a reflection of, of us. It's no more than a reflection of our values and what we think and our beliefs. But the other thing you can do when you come across a scripture that's challenging is you can roll up your, you'll roll up your sleeves and you can dig in and really wrestle with the scripture and wrestle with what does this teach me about who I am so that we can become more of a reflection of this book. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Is we're going to dive into this passage and wrestle with it and try to figure out what this passage means and what we can learn about it uh, for our lives today. So before we do that, let's pray. God, I just pray that you um, are, bless our time together uh, this morning, God. I pray you speak to us individually, God. Just open our hearts and our minds. Uh, to what you want each of us to, to learn and understand from these passages uh, this morning. I ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, so one of the things that I really like to do whenever I come across a passage of Scripture that I think um, 
is challenging is I like to look and see what the Bible says about the topic in other, in other areas. You know, some people say, well, the Bible contradicts itself. The Bible does not contradict itself, okay? What happens is people read things out of, out of context or take a, a, a passage out of context, one passage, and read it, and read it against something else and think all those two don't, don't, don't go together. That's not true. What it is, if you really take time to look at what these two passages say and what these two things, you can see that this book as a whole fits perfectly together. And we can take, we can look at, ch- at passages that challenge us or maybe are hard to understand, and we can look at what the Bible says about that topic in other places to help us learn, to help us understand what the Scripture means. So we're going to be looking at a couple different places this morning. Um, don't have a ton of time. I'm going to be moving kind of fast, but all the passages are on your uh, outline if you got those. I encourage you to take time this week and go through them too if you want to learn more about this topic. But the first place we're going to go uh, is the book of Acts in chapter 4. And at this point, um, this was right after the resurrection. Jesus ascended into heaven. The disciples were going around and telling everybody um, about Jesus. And of course, the powers that be uh, really didn't like this because uh, they were convincing a lot of people uh, that Jesus was who he says he was and people were turning and following um, Jesus. And so, uh, Uh, Chapter 4, verse 18 says this. um, It says, Then they, they being authorities, um, called them, the disciples, they called them in again and commanded them, Do not speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go, They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. So the disciples were essentially instructed, don't talk about Jesus uh, anymore. So what do you think they did? I think they said, got it. No. Verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before, or I'm sorry, this is uh, chapter 5, verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. And so in response to this, it says the leaders were furious and they wanted to to put these people to death. But there was one Pharisee that stood up and said, well, hold on a second. You know, if we just if we just let this go and don't do anything to 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 stoke this anymore, it'll just it'll just fade out. We don't have to do anything right now. And besides, if if God was really behind this, there was nothing there's nothing that we could do uh, to stop it anyway. So you jump down to verse 40 It says his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them to speak in the, to not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace in his name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that is Jesus is the Messiah. Like, I love this. They got in trouble for doing what the authorities told them not to do. And their response was, after they got flogged, yes, let's keep doing it. Let's keep going. I love that. And this line in verse 29 really helps us what Paul was saying, helps us understand what Paul was saying in Romans 13. He says, we must obey God rather than human beings. See, the Bible sets up a hierarchy of authority. 
And Romans 13 assumes, it assumes that God is at the top of that authority. And so when it comes to having to violate the commands of God to comply with the laws of man, the Bible is clear. It's this point. If I submit to the government, I submit to the government unless it requires me to disobey God. I submit to the government unless it requires me to disobey God. Now, we have to be careful with this, though, because this can't be the exception that swallows the rule. Like, this isn't a free pass just to ignore what Romans 13 is telling us. The key distinction here is when you're put in a situation when actually affirmatively doing something to comply with the law requires you to disobey God's teaching. But if the law doesn't require us, following man's law doesn't require us to break God's law, then Romans 13 applies. And so the second place we're going to go is John chapter um, 19. In this part of John, this is right before Jesus uh, was crucified. And so, you know, Jesus went before Pilate, who was the governor, um, the Roman governor, and the Jewish leaders had just made a case to him as to why he should be executed. And, and Pilate really wasn't buying their, uh, what they were saying. And so what Pilate did is he, pulled, he brought Jesus back uh, in private and wanted to talk to him. And so this is where uh, we pick up in verse 8. So John chapter 19, verse 8. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and went back inside the palace. Where did you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have the power to either free you or crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of greater sin. The book of Mark puts it this way, the exact same exchange. Uh, Pilate says, are you king of the Jews? Jesus says, if you have said so. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. And one of the things that's amazing about this passage is if you read all the other parts of the Gospels, like every time that Jesus is confronted um, by religious authorities, like he always has a way to just kind of turn the whole discussion on its head and, and, and challenge what they're saying in a way that really just, just makes, really calls the attention to the, to the issues, the, the, the hypocrisy. And he always has this perfect response, it feels like. And here we have this situation, though, when Pilate is essentially asking him for a reason to let, me, to let him go. Pilate's basically saying, you know, I have the power to either crucify you to release you. Give me a reason to release you. But Jesus doesn't fight back. He doesn't organize a rebellion or a revolution. He doesn't challenge Pilate's authority to punish him. He simply accepts that authority. And I mean, if you think about this, it's kind of like mind-blowing a little bit because what's happening here is um, Pilate only has that authority because Jesus gave it to him. But yet Pilate's asking Jesus, what do you want me to do with you? And Jesus is saying, I'm accepting the authority that I've given you is going to result in me being crucified. That's crazy to think about. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. So here's the second point to help us understand what Romans 13 is saying. If I obey God, I must be willing to accept the government's authority to punish me for disobedience. 
If I obey God, then I have to be willing to accept the government's authority to punish me for disobedience. If I follow God, it may result in me being punished, and I have to accept the government's authority to do that. And so with those two points in mind, hopefully those two points help clarify the harder parts of what Romans 13 um, are saying. So with those two points in mind, though, the question is, well, how do we apply the rest of Romans uh, 13? And it's point number three, is that when I can obey both God and the government, I should be a model citizen. Verse three says, do what is right and you will be commended. Uh, Verse seven says, if you owe taxes, then pay taxes. If you owe respect, then give respect. If you owe honor, uh, then give honor. Or we can look how Peter says it uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. He says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors, who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is, the, it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, Live as God's slaves, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. I love that part. He says, by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. See, what Peter is saying here is that people are always looking at ways to discredit Christianity. People are always looking uh, for Christians to mess up um, so that they can point out the hypocrisy in what we're doing or or, or question uh, our faith. But, I mean, how cool would it be, like, if Christians were model citizens, right? How, how cool would it be that if we uh, lived our lives so well and were s- and so crucial to society and such a benefit to society and set such great examples for other people to follow, non-believers would look at the positive role we play and it would silence their criticism. How cool would it be if, if they could look at us and say, you know, if they weren't here, we would miss them in our communities. I heard one time that, you know, people won't read the Bible, but they will read your lives. And so here's the question. Here's the question. Is when it comes to our civic behaviors, does it matter if we like the people who are in power? When it comes to our civic behaviors, does it matter if we like who's in power? And this is a really important question. Let's go ahead and put those pictures up behind me. So there's a very strong chance. I had to see if you are paying attention. It's President Bartlett from the West Wing. There's a very strong chance that you fit into one of two categories. Uh, category one is that you look at those people and you're totally apathetic and you're like, I could care less about them, okay? But I would guess that more of you are in the second category is that you look at some people in those pictures and you really like some of them, and you really don't like some of the others. I would even go so far as to say, you may even use the word hate. I hate some of those people in these pictures. And you might say in response to Paul, Paul, like, I know that you said I should submit to authorities and respect authorities, but if you only knew who was our president, president such and such, there's no way that you would have written that and said it applies to me today, because there is no way that a Christian could accept what those, that person is doing in power. And you know what I think Paul would say in response to that? Do you think Paul liked who was in power when he was there? 
See, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome, the church in Rome in 58 AD. And you know who the authority in Rome was in 58 AD that Christians were living under? Have you ever heard of a guy named Nero? Nero was emperor of Rome in 58 AD. Nero was crazy. Nero actually had his own mother executed, murdered, assassinated, however you want to put it, in a power struggle. Nero was so deranged that there was a fire that broke out uh, in Rome in 64 AD that he blamed the Christians for, and so he rounded up Christians and literally burnt them alive as punishment for this fire that he said they started. Like, as bad as we think those people are, none of them are Nero, okay? I mean, I, I will say that. None of them are Nero. If you owe respect, then give respect, whether you voted for the person or not. If you owe respect, then give respect, whether they are in your political party. If you owe respect, then give respect. If you think they're the best president of all times or the worst president of all times, whether their name is Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Barack Obama or George Bush, I could go right down the list. Now, does that mean that you have to agree with everything they do? Or does that mean that you can't oppose their ideas? Of course not. We can exercise our right to free speech. We can exercise our right to protest peacefully. We can exercise our right to petition the government. We can exercise our due process rights. We can vote. We can serve on a jury. We can volunteer on a campaign. We can give money to candidates or causes that we can believe in. We can run for office even. You can do all of those things. We can be engaged. We can be passionate. We can be educated. But while you are doing all of those things, at the same time, also be respectful. Be slow to anger. Be compassionate. Be kind. Be a peacemaker. Be humble, be patient, be gentle. Why do we have to be all those things when it comes to our civic lives? Because that's how we should act in all of our relationships, regardless of what we're doing. We, don't have to, we can't set aside those values when we engage in civic life. We don't get to have two personas. We don't get to have this identity in Christ, but then when we, when we get into the civic world, we lose all of that identity and act like something completely different. Jesus told us to love our enemies, and I'm pretty sure that would count as our political enemies as well. And you also know in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, it says that, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful life, lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We pray for our leaders, regardless of who they are, no matter who we are, we pray for them. See, being a model citizen means that we should probably tone down the rhetoric and lower the temperature. Being a model citizen means that our identity in Christ has to trump our political identity, our party identity, or any other identity. Because the Bible says ultimately our citizenship is in heaven. And when Jesus says that we should give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God's what is God's, we have to recognize the two areas. And I know, like, this is really hard, and I don't do a good job at this sometimes. Sometimes I read the news, and I'm just like, I get so angry, you know, and I, and I complain to other people about some of the things that I see. Like, this is a really hard passage. These are, these are hard ideas, hard passages. Um, but I would encourage you, like, take time and look at these passages on your own this week and see if you think they say something different, though. I mean, I look at this, and I think this is pretty clear, that we have a duty still to be good Christians even in this area. And here is why, here's why I think 
Paul said what he said in Romans 13. So we started with the history lesson, and I'm going to end with the history lesson too. So what happened after Paul wrote this letter, after he, after he wrote this letter to Rome? Paul eventually travels to Rome, where he gets put under house arrest and lives for a couple years. But Paul is ultimately executed by the Roman government for his faith. And so was Peter, and so was James, and so were thousands of other Christians for the next 250 years. 250 years is a long time. Just for context, 250 years ago, we were still part of England. That is a long time. Thousands of people were killed by the very government that Paul said they should respect and honor and follow. Because then something totally unexpected happened. In 313 uh, AD, Roman Emperor Constantine I uh, issued the Edict of Milan, making Christianity legal in the Roman Empire. And shortly after that, Constantine himself actually converted to Christianity. And by 380 AD, Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire. See, Rome wasn't converted because Christians started a rebellion or fought back, or tried to have a revolution, or used violence or force. And in fact, had they had done any of those things, they probably would have met the same, same, same end as any other entity that tried to challenge Rome's power through military might or through violence or force during that time. See, many of Jesus' followers thought that they were going to get a revolution, that Jesus was going to come and overthrow the government. But Jesus stood before the government the king of kings, lord of lords, stood before a Roman provincial governor and said, I recognize your authority over me in this moment. Because Jesus' kingdom, time and time again, what we see is Jesus' kingdom flips, the, flips everything on its head. Christianity spread because Christians loved each other and they offered hope despite the fact, and even in the face of incredible persecution. And I wonder, you know, if we went back to trying to, try the model of trying to um, exert our influence over society through our love instead of trying to outshout people that we disagreed with, I wonder if things would look differently today. And I want to close with this, this point that I've been really been thinking about a lot as I read through these passages this week. I think it's important to exercise that when we go through passages that talk about government or anything like that, that we have to make sure we're reading them in a way that doesn't like over-Americanize them or Westernize them. We have to be able to read them so that these passages apply you know, to Christians all over the world right now. And as I was kind of thinking about that, you know, this is kind of a fun exercise and thought for us but nobody's going to come busting through the doors arresting me right now for anything I said this morning, right? I could say anything I wanted to, and I'm not going to get arrested or flogged or beaten or anything like that. There are Christians, though, in parts of the world right now where living out their faith can have serious life-altering consequences. They don't have the same liberties that we have. And this discussion about what their relationship with, with governing authorities for them, I'm sure is a very different thought process than what we think about things, because for them, this is very real and has very real consequences. Um, and I just want to provide one kind of concrete example of this. We can put up this next set of pictures. Um, so on the screen right now, uh, these are some of our partners uh, and friends 
um, in Haiti. So it's Darson and Wadney in the top, uh, and uh, Wuvi and Noyo uh, down uh, on the second row. If you've been following the news uh, over the past couple months, Haiti doesn't have a functioning government right now. Uh, in fact, all these gangs are starting to take over and, um, and are starting to kidnap missionaries and, and kidnap church leaders and try to get ransom out of, you know, try to get them to pay ransom. Uh, being a Christian is very dangerous in Haiti right now. There's a, and this is, in, this is despite the fact that, this is a New York Times article that said, this is a New York Times saying this, religious organizations retain great popularity, often filling the void left by a debilitated state, giving aid and food to the needy, and acting as a social force that some residents say is keeping Haiti from falling apart. Like the church is standing in a gap right now. There is no government. The church is standing in that gap trying to help people and trying to live out their faith right now. And in doing so, there's consequences and there's real danger for them in doing that. And I just wanted to remind us that being a Christian is dangerous. Uh, some of our brothers and sisters around the globe right now, um, it, being a Christian is dangerous for them. And I just wanted to recognize that this morning. And as we close in prayer, I wanted to take specific time uh, to pray for those uh, people this morning. So let's pray. God, I thank you, Lord, uh, for your sovereignty um, over, over everything. Uh, for us and for the governments that rule over us, uh, God. And I just pray that we can, um, as we interact uh, with the government, God, and those in power and talk about things of government, uh, that we can just live out uh, the model of who you want us to be for others, God, that we can remember uh, that our identity is in you, Lord, um, and we, uh, we can't, um, we have to keep that identity when we do these things, God. Lord, I pray specifically right now um, for our friends uh, in Haiti. Um, Lord, I pray that you protect them, uh, that you remind them this morning of how much you love them, uh, and that you give them courage uh, and peace to continue to do the things that you're calling them to do, to love people and love others, uh, even in the midst of uh, facing danger um, uh, and, and harm and risk of their lives, God. Uh, Lord, we love you so much, God, and I just uh, I pray uh, this morning for um, people who are gathering together right now to worship and to do the exact same thing we're doing in, in circumstances that are very different than ours, God. I pray that you just... Uh, wrap your arms around them in love, Lord, and help uh, open our hearts to ways that you want us to help them uh, and to support them in whatever ways that we uh, can from here, God. We love you, and uh, we're just thankful for your son this morning. All these things in his name. Amen.